Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Shabbat, Kuf Nun Zion, 157, the last page of Masachet Shabbat. Thank you for joining us for this Masachet. We'll see you at Erevin tomorrow. But first, let's finish off this daf and finish off the parak and finish off the Masachet. Rav Yochanan Stama Achrina Ashkach. So we have a whole statement here that is... Um, that says that Rabbi Yochanan found an unattributed Mishnaic statement according to Rabbi Shimon. This is, you know, again, following in the discussion that has preceded this section. And here we are back in the discussion of Shabbat. This is when you're talk when it's Shabbat and you're dealing with you know, you're at your Shabbat table and you've got bones on the table and you've got peels on the table. Rabbi Shimon says you can remove those from the table, even, you know, given that they are mukta, given that they are something that you would not ordinarily handle on Shabbat. Beit Shammai says you can remove them from the table. Beit Hill says you can remove the whole board of the table, right? And, and shake it off, let's say, to get rid of these same items that would otherwise be mukta, um, rather than picking up each one little thing. And the implication here is that these things are icky. Um, they are, I would say, the debris of the meal, let's say. And you don't, on the one hand, you don't want them around. But on the other hand, there's there's no good reason. You have no purpose for them to handle them on Shabbat. So they fall into this category of muksa, and it's called muksa machmat mus, right? The idea that this is icky, right? Literally disgusting. Um, although I'm not sure that every little less item of these things are definitely what we would call disgusting, but that's the category, right? This is something that has no use for you on Shabbat. The only thing you can do with it is to remove it from your presence so that you can go back to enjoying Shabbat. So Rav Nachman says, one second, and he flips the opinions. He says, we have a tradition it says that Beit Shammai lined up with Rabbi Huda and Beit Hill lined up with Rabbi Shimon, meaning that they took the opposite positions. That Beit Hill said you could remove the small items, and Beit Hill and Beit Shammai said that you could only remove the whole table and shake it all out. Um, and then the halach, of course, is with Beit Hill, um, and it's con- considered a stab mishnah. Um, okay. Yeah, no, I think we, we couldn't uh, end Masachet Shabbat without one final discussion of Muksa. So I think it's <laughs> important to have these two different, again, more concepts of different types of Muksa or what could make something a uh, Muksa. Uh, so I, think yeah, I, have one, I have one little, I have one little bit more. Yeah. Because, because this then is taken, this whole, that's a whole Tanaitic, Tanaitic discussion, right? And now we have the Amoraic conversation on top of that. Right, where Rav Acha and Rav Ina have a discussion of, again, this muksa machmat mius, muksa that its reason for being muksa is that it is disgusting, which means it has no other purpose on Shabbat. So one of them, Rav Acha Rav Ina, it doesn't say which, says, maintains that all of Shabbos, the, all the halachas of Shabbos, and Muksa and everything followed the halachas of Rabbi Shimon, except for this one case of Muksa Machmat Mius, Umayinihu Ner Yashan. What's the example that we're, when we don't follow the position of Rabbi Shimon is an old oil lamp, right? Meaning, according to Rabbi Shimon, you could move it. According to the Psak, according to Ravina Ravacha, we, we can't 
move it because it's icky, right? Meaning it's an old oil lamp. It's not, it's not usable at this time. It's already served its purpose, let's say. Um, and then the other one of these two, Ravach and Ravina says, oh, actually, according to what you've said, we, we actually think that Rabbi Shimon's position here is how we paskin, namely that you can move that lamp despite Mahmat Mius, right? Even, or anywhere that we have a case of Mahmat Mius, also like Rabbi Shimon, you could still move it. And, but his example is a different one. Near Shabbat, So there, in a case of uh, a lamp that was in fact kindled, you know, ignited for that same Shabbat, it's not an old one, but it's just that it has burned out at this time. You could then move it, which of course is not how we pass. We don't move the candlesticks for no good reason. Um, any item that was set aside for monetary loss, meaning it is so valuable that you're not going to handle it on Shabbat, Rabbi Shimon would also say that you don't handle it. And here we have our you know, it's the same mission that we've discussed about the basic principles of muksa since the beginning. Um, namely, all you can move, this is the, the permissive statement about muksa, not the one that says you can't handle anything. This one says you can handle anything except for the, what is this, the big plow, the big saw and the blade of the plow, right? Because they are too valuable and so you can't move them. So again, here we close, I guess we really close our discussion of muksa, right? Things you cannot handle and with with more obscure categories of muksa, namely, is it going to be something that is so valuable that you're going to set aside with no purpose for Shabbat? Or is it something that is icky and therefore you would not handle it on Shabbat except for the sake of removing it from your presence on Shabbat? And the machloket between the Amorayim is about the machloket about, of the Tanaim, which I think also kind of um, builds us a nice house, so to speak, on the way Hilchot Shabbat and Hilchot Muks in particular have worked throughout. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, again, I don't feel that I totally have a great handle on every single concept of Muksa. Um, maybe it will come to me better when, we, when I do the second round of Tafiomi. Um, but this at least introduces some interesting concepts here of different categories of uh, Muksa. Um, so to finish up here, I'm going to do the Mishnah. Um, and then read the end of the Gemara. And then with that, we will conclude um, our learning of Masach uh, Shabbat. And then tomorrow we will meet you all back here for a Reuven. So uh, the Mishnah ends. This is the last Mishnah of Shabbat. Uh, we can annul vowels on Shabbat. So what are they talking about here? Um, we know that in the Torah um, that a husband can annul a, white, a vow of his wife or father can annul the wife of his daughter. Um, and one of the things the Gemara is going to get into a discussion about is um, whether or not that annulment has to take place within 24 hours of when the vow is done, or if it's just during the actual day itself. So in other words, once it becomes dark, um, even if it wasn't a full 24 hours, so in other words, if you made the vow an hour before Shabbat is over, once it becomes dark, it's considered to be the next day. And that's the only period of time that you would have. And that's why we allow the annulling of vows on Shabbat. And we allow people to be released from a vow, um, especially if it was something that they said that they 
uh, were going to not were would abstain from, but it's something that they would need on Shabbat. So this is a, of a different process. And what this would mean is somebody took a vow and not within the 24 hours, right? Like a week later or a month later decides they can no longer keep this vow for whatever reason. Um, and here the example is because it's something particular that they needed for Shabbat. Again, the Gemara, uh, which I'm not going to read today, has a discussion about whether or not that clause of Shehein Litzorach HaShabbat applies to the releasing of vow and also annulling a vow. But for the Nishalim, for releasing a vow, it's something that you had to do in front of a Bezdin. Better to do it before Shabbat, but if for some reason you were stuck and had to do it on Shabbat, under certain circumstances, you could do it on Shabbat. Um, or we're allowed to shutter a window um, on Shabbat. Um, and we can measure a rag. Um, and this was something that was done to determine whether or not it could actually uh, be something that could become Tame. We can measure a mikvah, determine whether or not it's large enough to be actually a mikvah. And so there was a story uh, in the days of uh, Rabbi Tzadok's father and Abba Shaul uh, ben Batnit. And they shuttered the windows, the window of a uh, earthenware flask. And then they tied an earthen vessel uh, with some type of reed grass, because they wanted to know if there was within this vessel a crack that was the size of a tapach. Now, what are they talking about here? Um, so the Gemara again explains that this had to do with the whole setup, that there was a uh, dead body, and basically they shuttered the window because they wanted to make sure that Tuma, it was a, basically a body that was sort of in this alleyway, uh, which we're going to hear a lot about alleyways and things like that when we start a Reuben. Um, and so in order to keep the Tuma out of the house, they shuttered a window, but then they also wanted to see if the this body was sort of underneath some type of clee. And if the clee had enough of a crack in it, it's sort of like the Tuma escapes from the clee and then really can't travel anywhere. Um, and from this story, we basically learn that you can do things like shutter, measure, and tie um, when it is uh, when it is Shabbat. Um, so that's like a very interesting story that they want to. Some of this, the, the shuttering was probably something that was meant to be temporary, um, but that's the story that they want to use to illustrate uh, that some of these activities were allowed. So, um, and then again, as I explained, the Gemara has some interesting discussion about the difference between annulling a vow versus um, uh, versus uh, uh, releasing a vow and that clause of Litzor Shabbat, where does it apply to? And then gets into a discussion of elaborating that story a little bit more. Uh, but now I'll conclude with the ending of Masach Shabbat. Ula ikale lebe reish galuta. So Ula happened to be in the house of the reish galuta. Chazei l'rababar ravhuna. And he saw that Rabbar Barfuna, Diyate Ba'abna Demai Bakamashahle. He was sitting in a tub of water in Shabbat and was measuring it. Amrle, Ula said to him, and again, this seems to be consistent with Ula's personality. He seems always very happy to tell people when he thinks they're not doing something correct. Amar to Amri Rabbanan. He says, When did the rabbi say this? Like, in other words, when did they say uh Midadab de mitzvah? Right? They said you can only measure 
if it's for the purpose of actually doing a mitzvah. And you seem to be sort of sitting here in this tub and just sort of measuring, right? To lab, um, to lab mitzvah. But if it's not for a mitzvah, me, I'm more. Who said that you were allowed to do it? So he's trying to figure out, Ula, what's going on here. Amar Lay, right? So what does he, uh, what does he answer him? What does Rabbi Bar Ravuna answer him? Mitasek ba'alma ana. He said, I was just busying myself. He's like, I wasn't really measuring it uh, for any purpose, uh, but I was just sort of measuring it. I personally thought this was such a weird way for the Masechet to end after everything that we did. Uh, but this is the concluding story uh, of the Masechet. So Hadron Allah, uh, uh, Masechet uh, Shabbat. And I hope that we will return to Masechet Shabbat at some point. Amazing. I just want to add, um, we began our study of Masechet Shabbat on March 8th, 2020. And the difference in our world and the amount that we have gone through together as a world and on our podcast and everything since then has, listen, nobody could have predicted it and nobody expected it. And, and, and such drastic changes. We talked about Corona Torah throughout. I feel like um, I hope that as we close Masakha Shabbat, we can move on to a world where, you know, we're looking forward to things like vaccinations and, and, a real healthy return to normal, which we're not there yet, but, and I don't know how many more Masechta we'll have to go through till we get there, but I'm just, I, I can't, but I can't end, close the Masechta without noting that this was not, these were not normal times. And we thank you for sticking with us throughout, um, you know, they, the, our study of the DAF normalized, you know, our schedules because we were repeat you know constantly recording and i i hope that that provides some i don't know at least routine for the rest of you as our yeah routine and was i so disrupted and i think it was hard for people i know for us in our schedule uh ann and i had these big plans we were supposed to meet in israel over pesach which obviously didn't happen because i was not able to travel and we had this whole plan of like how we were going to catch up and finally get ahead um, you know, to think that we started on March 8th, my kid's school closed on March 3rd, um, is actually pretty amazing. And again, I would just echo what Anne said, um, anyone who completed this with us, especially during these particular times, and even if you missed a couple of DAPM or you're a little bit behind, uh, you should just feel, you know, your dedication to Torah and to learning and that you did it with us. We can't thank you enough for that. Uh, but everyone should really, it's a big yasher call to everybody who participated in this. You know where to find us. Until tomorrow, go and learn. <laughs>